Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to continue our study in this instructional letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his son in the faith, on how to order the church and how to put the church into a proper order. And though there is a lot of change in the context between the first century writing of this letter and our own day, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of clear instruction for us to strive after as a church, and even some character qualifications that we as men and women can also pursue and strive after as we seek to follow Christ and be more like Him. So this morning we're going to look at the the second office within the church. We're going to look at the office of the deacon, and that starts in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles open, just follow along as I read this text. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and he says that deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Once again, this is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, I do thank you for your Word. I thank you that you have not left your people to flounder in this world. You have given us clear instruction on what we are to prioritize as your people when we gather and how we are to be ordered and led and served. The last few weeks we've studied the elder's office, that shepherding role that is seeking to follow the example that Christ has set as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the people. We as elders, we we seek to shepherd faithfully uh, according to the qualifications and responsibilities hidden in your word. But now as we focus on deacons, we look at what what the life of a servant should look like, what the life of a lead servant should look like. And Father, I do pray that you would help us to understand how to apply this directly to our own lives and to our own church here at Cornerstone. I pray for our deacons who are actively serving now that you would encourage them and that you would uh, even inspire them. But for those who have not yet made their way into that office. Lord, I pray that this would serve as an inspiration, uh, a goal that is set before us, that we should strive to be faithful men of good reputation and moral standing, as well as spiritual maturity, so that we could be qualified for these offices. So Lord, would you accomplish your purpose in the preaching of your word to instruct, but also to uh, inspire? And would you allow the gospel to be proclaimed clearly and bear fruit in the hearts of your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is the way of this world to recognize great leaders. 
and to remember them for their accomplishments. When we think of the history of our own country, we remember the names of certain men, certain individuals who gave an outsized influence into our country based upon their lifespan. I mean, maybe we think about those in, in industry, names like Rockefeller, names like Ford or Carnegie or J.P. Morgan. Or maybe we could just think about some modern names, men who are not just shaping industry, but uh, inventing new industries and shaping the world. Uh, Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Elon Musk, their names find their way into our news feeds on a weekly, if not a daily basis. We, we see the contributions of men like this and we remember them. We highlight their contributions. And that's just in the, the secular world. When we think of great men of faith, we follow a very similar pattern. We think of these, these names like great theologians from history. We think of Augustine or Aquinas or Luther or Calvin or John Owen or Jonathan Edwards. Those are the names that jump into my mind. I'm not sure what jumps into yours, but I'm sure there are a few there. Or maybe we could think about the category of well-known preachers throughout history. You think of guys like Whitfield or Spurgeon or Lloyd-Jones or even Billy Graham or R.C. Sproul or John Piper or John MacArthur. All of these men have have had an outsized influence on me and perhaps on you as well. And for better or worse, our minds remember these men. We remember these names. We remember their contributions. But if we're honest and we're careful about how we remember great men, we will also recognize that they were not able to accomplish great things on their own. Behind each of these men were hundreds of other people working quietly behind the scenes to make sure that those accomplishments that those great men were striving after became a reality. And in the church today, if we we follow that paradigm, we know that this is true. Pastors are the ones who get nearly all of the credit for growth and success. They get invited to speak at influential venues. They get book deals. Rarely does the credit in the church go in the direction of those faithful men and women who serve behind the scenes, faithfully, quietly, plodding along. That's not where our attention goes. But Paul makes clear in this text that a properly ordered New Testament church is incomplete without the contribution of deacons. And the word deacon just means servant. Their names are seldom mentioned in history. I mean, think about it. How many of you can name a deacon from history that was this great man that made a huge contribution? It just doesn't happen. We don't think that way. But the role of faithful deacons is one of the most significant blessings that a church can enjoy. And so this morning, as we continue our study in the leadership and how the church is to be ordered in terms of leadership, we're going to focus our attention on the role of the deacon, on the office of the deacon. And we're going to look at several things. Number one, we're going to look at his office to understand what his responsibility and role is. But we're also going to see that his character is of great importance. We're going to learn about how he is to be tested. We're going to look at his wife. We're going to look at his family then we're also going to look at his reward. So there's quite a bit that we're going to study this morning. But let's start 
by at least trying to define the deacon's office. And I'm going to do something a little bit odd. I'm going to jump down to verse 10. So let's read verse 10. It says this, And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons. It could literally read, let them serve in the office of deacon, if they have proven themselves blameless. So when it comes to the leadership of the church today, There are two offices. I said today because in New Testament times, there was three offices. You had the apostle, and you have elders, and then you had deacons. The apostolic age has ended long ago, and so now we are left with two offices, the office of elder and the office of deacon. The elders lead the church by exercising oversight within the body. They preach the word, they guide the church, they protect the church, they give primary care to the souls of the saints. Now, the deacons have a different ministry, but it is no less important. The term deacon, or in the Greek, the diakonos, it refers to the men in the church who care for the needs and the livelihood of the body. So the elders give primary concern to the spiritual needs of believers, while the deacons give primary concern to the physical needs of believers. And I say primary because that is by no means the only area of concern for each office. The elders and deacons work hand-in-hand to care for the overall needs of the body because it is a shared ministry. But there are primary responsibilities given to each. And our understanding of the deacon's role is shaped by a variety of passages in the New Testament, but it also comes from the title itself. I've already mentioned that the term deacon simply means servant. But the term is used nearly a hundred times Um, in various forms. It's used nearly a hundred times in the New Testament. And there's only about three or four uses that are traditionally translated as deacon. Most often, it's just translated as servant. Servant, over and over and over again. And so what we see as we study the New Testament, we we see this broad expectation and understanding for God's people, for for those who trust in Christ, to be servants. We serve one another We serve the needs of the body. We serve in all kinds of ways. But there is a specific elevated office of lead servant that comes under this title of deacon here. And you may know this. You've probably heard this taught at some point. In secular Greek, so that's outside the scope of of the way this term is used in the scriptures. In secular Greek, the term deacon, it means one who waits on a table. Have you ever heard that before? table waiters. Um, now, again, that's, that's fairly narrow. It's very broad in its understanding. But the, the deacons understood in that way were those who waited on tables at feasts. They filled wine glasses. They tasted the food before it was presented. And then they served the needs of those sitting at the table throughout the meal. And you can see the term being used in the New Testament in that way, like the wedding at Cana. Uh, where Jesus turned water into wine. You see that term being used of those who serve, right? That's just a common way that the term is used. But our understanding of the role and office of a deacon, it really begins to take shape as we look at Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, you may know this, in Acts chapter 6, the early church was, was growing dramatically. 
Um, This is the beginning of the book of Acts. So Christ has gone to the cross to die, to pay for the sins of his people. The gospel, he has been raised from the dead and he's ascended to heaven. The apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin preaching the gospel. And as a result, thousands of believers are grafted into the church. But along with all of these people coming into the church, there are problems that arose. One of those problems arises in Acts chapter 6. And and I'll I'll be honest with you here. In Acts chapter 6, the men that are chosen to help solve that problem, they're not called deacons. And the, the word deacon doesn't occur in that text in that way. It does occur in the text, uh, but it's in the verb form of those who are serving. But it seems clear from the context of the situation in Acts chapter 6 that that's what gave rise to the deacon's office. So here's the issue. It was early in the, the days of the church. Um, there was a problem that arose where a certain group of widows were not receiving the care that they needed. And the church was responsible to care for those widows. And so the apostles learned about this problem and they came up with a solution. And the solution was that they they asked the church, they asked the community of faith to recommend to them seven men. Seven men who had an exceptional character. Seven men who were spiritually mature, who could focus their attention on providing care to the body. And the recommendations were made. The apostles laid their hands on these men and then their ministry began. And it was a ministry that was designed to serve the physical needs of believers. And their service becomes something of a model for the the deacon ministry within the New Testament church. Their primary role was to meet the immediate needs, the immediate physical needs of the body. And by taking up this role, it allowed the apostles to continue to do what was their primary role, to preach the word and to pray for the saints. And this gave rise to what we understand today, this team of leadership of elders and deacons. And this is in every church within the New Testament, and it's in every church today, or at least it should be. And by the way, one of those seven men was named Stephen. And Stephen was not just a servant. Stephen was also a gifted preacher. His sermon, his only recorded sermon, can be found in Acts chapter 7, and it resulted in him becoming the first Christian martyr. And the reason I point this out is to say that serving is by no means the only ministry that the deacons undertake, but it is their primary role their primary responsibility. Their responsibility is the practical and active care of the church with regard to the basic necessities of life. Okay, so if you're thinking about this and you're saying, oh, we have an office of people that are devoted to, their whole responsibility is to serve the needs of the body. So that must mean if I'm not in that office, I could just sit on my hands and wait until someone comes and serves me, right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There is a real sense in which, as believers in Christ, all of us are called to serve, whether we hold the title and office of deacon or not. Every Christian is called to serve the Lord. Every Christian is called to serve one another. You don't have to hold an office to serve. In fact, Jesus makes clear in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, that all of us will be held accountable for how we care for one another. Because in how we care for the brothers and how we care for one another, it's a reflection of how we love and care for and serve Christ. So, so don't think that just because you're not in the office, you don't have an opportunity to serve or a responsibility to serve. You very much do. 
All of us do. But a great deal of responsibility is placed upon the deacons to lead the entire congregation in serving and by their service to foster an attitude of sacrificial service among the body. So deacons lead in serving, but they also lead the rest of us to serve. They provide opportunities for service, but then they also lead by example. We should be striving to follow that example. So that's something of the office of the deacon, but how do we determine who fits the, the role? How do we determine who is right for the deacon office? Well, look back at verse 8, and we'll see the deacon's character. He says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, many of these qualifications overlap with what we've studied in the last few weeks when it, when it comes to the elders. So we can move through this list fairly quickly. Uh, but notice again that Paul lists both positive and negatives. They must be this, but they must not be this. And he starts out by saying that a deacon must first be dignified. And that's very similar to that term above reproach that elders are, are to be. Elder is to be above reproach. A, a deacon must be dignified. The word simply means to be worthy of respect, to be worthy of honor. They must have a good reputation as a model of Christian faithfulness. And one of the ways that we can tell if a man meets this qualification is whether or not he is double-tongued. When's the last time you used that phrase, double-tongued? I mean, unless you're reading Scripture. It's just not a common phrase. But maybe you've seen a deacon or two that have had that problem. Maybe you yourself. But the idea here is that this man doesn't speak out of two sides of his face. This is not a hypocrite who says one thing and does another. The opposite of being double-tongued is to be a person of sincere speech. They say what they mean and they mean what they say. They, you can trust their word. You can trust what they say. They are committed to what they say. His word means something. He doesn't have a habit of stirring up division with his words. Last week, we saw that a deacon must not be, I mean, that an elder must not be uh, a drunkard. Well, here we see that a deacon also must not be addicted to much wine. And these phrases are a little bit different, but they carry the same idea. The word for addiction here means to be devoted in part of one's life to something. And in this case, a, a deacon who serves should not have a life devoted to alcohol. Right? I mean, that just seems like it should be a very clear-cut thing for us, but obviously it was an issue. Back in the first century, Paul has to mention it more than once. He knows that this is an issue, and he says a deacon must be able to control himself with regard to his speech, with regard to his conduct, and with regard to his appreciation for wine, the gifts that God has given. So it is interesting to me, I don't know if it's interesting to you, but that the function of alcohol in a person's life is a measure of their fitness to serve in the church. Alcoholism is not just a modern problem. It goes way back. And if you look at Scripture, there are only three beverages that are mentioned over and over and over again. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but there are three beverages that are mentioned over and over again. There's water and milk and wine. And of course, you see other things like strong drink or whatever, but that's very seldom. The, the most common are water, milk, and wine. Water is a basic necessity of life. Milk, it relates to strength or fatness. If you, if you have milk, you have, you have 
a certain level of wealth and security. And then wine is generally associated with ceremony and celebration. So water, milk, and wine. The Bible says that God gave wine to men to gladden their hearts. That's Psalm 104, verse 15. And it was very common for one of those three to be the regular part of a person's diet. So wine was a regular part of a person's diet in various forms. But to become devoted to it, or to become addicted to it, clearly forbidden throughout Scripture, and we need to be on guard against that as we look for our leaders. A deacon must also not be greedy for dishonest gain. And this is very similar to the elders not needing to, needing to be men who, who do not have a love for money. Uh, a deacon cannot be the kind of man who's always looking for a way to get more money in his own pocket, especially if it, if it is in a dishonest way. And all of this adds up to a deacon being a man who exercises a, a, a noticeable and above average self-mastery in his conduct and speech and use of alcohol and attitude towards money. I mean, these are model Christian men. But that's not all. It's not enough that they are model character men. They must also have a theological understanding. Look at what he says in the next phrase. He says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now last week we saw that an elder should not be a recent convert, but it's absolutely essential that he be a convert. I think the same thing could be said here. They must hold the mystery of the faith. This person must be committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they hold to it. They are anchored to it. They must have a firm grasp on the deep truths of the faith. Now this is a weird way to say that though, right? I mean, why is he using the word mystery here? And it, it, it just means mystery. It's, it's not uh, one of those really hard words to understand, but why is he using the term here? Mystery refers to those hidden and private counsels of God. But if you know your New Testament, then you know the Apostle Paul likes to use this word, and he likes to use it in connection with the gospel. In other words, he uses it as a shorthand way of referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, I want you to have all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he defines it, the mystery, God's mystery is Christ. In Romans 16, 25, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the good news, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. Again, he's using mystery there as a reference to the gospel. It is absolutely essential that your leaders, that our leaders, elders, deacons, and I would even go so far as to say, even those who teach in classes, Sunday school, and disciple young people, they must have a firm grasp on the mystery of the faith. They must have a thorough knowledge and experience of the gospel of God's grace. And you might be thinking, well, what is the gospel exactly? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? The good news is the, the essential truth of the Christian faith. This is our message. This is the main thing that we proclaim to the world. 
that Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, came, lived a righteous life that we couldn't live on our own, and he died to take upon himself the sins of his people, and that he rose from the dead three days later to show that he had accomplished, accomplished redemption for all those who believe. The good news is not that you have to be a great moral person so that God will love you. The good news is that even while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. That's the gospel. And if a person doesn't have a a firm grasp on the gospel, they're not a believer. And they certainly have no responsibility, no business being a leader in the church. So a a deacon, an elder, whomever, a deacon especially, must know themselves to be sinners in need of forgiveness. They must know and believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God who lived and died and rose again. And they must accept Christ as Savior, Lord, and King, and then be willing to serve the Lord and His church. But how are we supposed to know if this is true of deacons? Do we just say, hey, are you a Christian? Oh, sure, yeah, I got it. Does that, is that all? Or is there more? Well, Paul seems to indicate that there should be more that goes into this. So let's look at the deacons' testing. That's back in verse 10. He says, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. This testing process refers to a, uh, an, an assessment, a scrutiny of a man's life. And Paul says it's absolutely mandatory. In other words, not every man who is recommended to the elders to serve as a deacon is automatically qualified. Did y'all hear that? Just because a person wants the office and just because you recommend them to the office does not mean that they are automatically qualified. They must be tested first. They must be examined and assessed to see whether or not they meet the qualifications. They must be examined to confirm whether or not they fit the bill. And only when they have proven themselves, blameless, he says, which is very similar to that word above reproach, only when they have proven themselves blameless in all of these qualifications are they able to serve. This is not negotiable. Far too many churches have gotten themselves in far too many problems because they have avoided the qualifications for elders or deacons. We call this process of testing ordination. And it involves several steps, a series of steps. Let me just give you an idea of what we do here, because Paul is not exactly clear on what that testing looks like, so it's left to our interpretation at some level. But he has given us the qualifications. But for us as a church, what we do is first we get to know the men of the church. The elders and the deacons will spend time with the men in the church. We will get to know them through the church membership process. We'll get to know them just in normal weekly gatherings or at work days or um, during home group or during care groups. And when a man shows that he possesses the character of a leader and the willingness to serve the body, we might reach out to them if they're, and to see if they're willing to enter into the ordination process. Typically, this happens every year when the elders and deacons sit down and we ask one another, is there an individual that you believe would be a good candidate for this office or that office? And we'll discuss those things and then we'll take the next step of reaching out to those individuals. That next step involves us Uh, Once they say, yeah, I'd like to be involved in this, we give to them and their wives a theological uh, 
questionnaire, if you will. It's kind of a little test to see what they understand and what they believe and where they stand on these things and those things. It has to do with what, what they believe in connection with what we proclaim as a church, our statement of faith and various things. And, and those theological questions will relate to their potential office. And they'll fill that out, both them and their wives, and I'll explain why later. And they'll, they'll fill that out, they'll submit that to the elders, and then once we've had a chance to read over it, we might ask them a follow-up question. But once we're satisfied that they've got a grasp on this, they, they have a, a satisfactory answer on these theological questions, then we move to a third step, which is a, a face-to-face interview, where we'll sit down with that that deacon candidate and his wife, and there'll be an elder and deacon present, and usually one of our wives, so that uh, hopefully we'll, we feel comfortable enough in that meeting. And once they've completed that interview process, and they've showed themselves to meet the qualifications listed here, then we'll present them to you as a church. We vote on deacons. We vote on offices within this congregation. We generally give the body of 30 days or a month to decide to, to know that this person is being recommended. And if something's wrong, if there's something we don't know, you can come and tell us, hey, I saw this. You might want to ask about that. This is the way that you can engage in this process. And, and then once that has happened, and let's say an individual has been presented to the church, they are voted on at a regular scheduled meeting, and they've been approved to serve in, as a deacon, then we will call them and their wives up here, and the elders and deacons will gather around them, lay our hands on them as we see in pattern in Scripture, and we will pray for the Lord to strengthen them and bless their ministry among us at Cornerstone. That's the ordination process for those of you who aren't really clear on that. And then... What Paul says here is, if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve. And I just find it interesting. Uh, The term serve, the the verbal form of serve, is just a varied form of the word deacon. So deacons get started deaconing, right? I mean, that's just essentially what he says here. If If you've proven yourself to be a faithful deacon, you start deaconing. But what about his wife? And why am we including the wife along the way. Well, there's a reason for that. Look at verse 11. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Now, you may know this and you may not know this, that this verse poses a series of challenges. Because even though the ESV um, supplies the word there at the very beginning, the ESV assumes that Paul is giving instruction for the deacon's wife, but the Greek is not clear on that. The Greek doesn't have that modifier. The, it just uses the term gunekos, which can either be translated as wives or simply women. Right? I don't know if y'all caught that. So here, here's what that means. That means that there's a question we have to answer. Is Paul simply giving instruction for the wives of men who serve as deacons, or is he talking about women who serve as deaconesses? Which, by the way, the word deaconess doesn't occur anywhere in the New Testament. The text isn't clear. It's just not clear. Uh, Paul could have done a lot of different things to make it clear. He did not make it clear for us. We don't know if he meant for deacons' wives to serve this way, or if he's 
talking about a, a whole different office in the church. If he wanted to do that, he could have included the modifier that a lot of your Bibles, your translations will use. The word there, their wives. It could have been that. He could have said to the women who serve as deacons. He could have you know, fashioned the statement in a whole different way and he could have clarified that. He didn't do that either. So we're left to interpret this passage. And when one passage is unclear, we, we gain as much as we can from that passage to understand the context, and then we have to look at other passages of Scripture as well to make sense out of what we're going to understand this passage to teach. So it, it's, it's also not any easier that he didn't say anything about the, the elder's wife, right? He didn't say anything about the elder's wife needing to be meeting certain qualifications. I have a, an opinion on that. I'm not going to give you all of that today, but... Um, some look at this verse and they see grounds for establishing the role of a deaconess within the church. Have you ever heard that? I'm sure you have. Some of you have. And they'll also point to Romans 16.1. It's the only other reference that they'll point to, to uh, at least biblically, to make sense out of this. And, and there's a reference in Romans 16.1 to a woman named Phoebe who was a servant in the church uh, in Chantria. And they translate that word servant to mean that she serves as a deacon in the church. And I've already told you that there are very few instances in the New Testament where the word diakonos is actually translated as deacon. Most often it's just translated as servant. But they make a, a conscious decision to say, she's a servant, so must, she must be a deacon. So this must be evidence for the, the deaconess, right? Most of the time that's just not the way we do things, but that's how a lot of people will go. But let's, let's talk about the text itself. Let's talk about the book that we've been studying for the last 10, 11 weeks. Given the fact that Paul has already stated his universal prohibition against women teaching or exercising authority in the church, to me it would seem out of place for him to be suggesting that women hold the office of a deacon, which is a leadership role within the church. And in addition, in the very next verse in this passage, he states that a deacon must be the husband of one wife, and that also doesn't seem to fit with the idea that some deacons are women. And there's a lot of other things we could talk about. But what are we to make of this passage? I believe the best way to interpret this is to understand that Paul is referring to the deacons' wives. And for him to mention them indicates that they are considered to share in their husband's role as those who lead the church in serving one another. The elder's role is a role of exercising authority. The deacon's role exercises a certain level of authority, but it's primarily a servant role. And I believe that Paul is indicating that deacons and their wives serve in a shared capacity. And as a church, we recognize that. We recognize that deacons' wives share greatly in the ministry responsibility that is given to their husbands. That is why they take part in the testing process and are also included in formally being set apart for the service we don't give them the title of deaconess because we don't see it in the scriptures. But we understand that that role that they have with their husband in serving is a shared ministry role. And because it is a shared ministry role, they too have to serve as models of character and service for the body. Look at what he says here about the deacon's wife. They must be dignified, which means worthy of respect. They must not be slanderers which means they're not prone to malicious speech or gossip. They must be sober-minded, which means they're level-headed, they're self-controlled. And they are to be models of faithfulness to the other women in the church. 
And so as a team, the deacon and his wife, according to Scripture, they're to be strong in the faith. They're to be models of character and self-control. They must be those who promote peace and unity and godliness within the congregation. They must hold firmly to the mystery of the faith, and they serve together to meet the varied needs of those within the body. By the way, I just want to say one quick thing before we move on. For those who do hold to the office of deaconess, I have a lot of dear friends, and you have probably a a lot of maybe those ministry heroes that, that affirm that office they are well within their rights to interpret the passage differently than I have. So they're not enemies of the faith because they do. They just interpret it a little bit differently. So just wanted to make sure I said that to you. But also, like the elders, the deacons are to prove themselves in the home. Look at verse 12 really quickly. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. This is almost the same thing we saw just last week. To manage the house is to exercise authority over one's home. You have a responsibility. You will answer to God for how you care for your wife, how you love and serve your wife, and how you love and care and nurture the faith of your children. And this also, the the phrase, the terminology, extends beyond the relationships in the home to the overall management of the household. You as a man, you as a deacon, you have a responsibility to be instrumental in the instruction of your children, in the financial um, decision-making processes, in uh, everything that regards uh, the leadership of a home. So like an elder, a deacon must be a faithful and competent leader of his household. And then lastly, verse 13, let's look at the deacon's reward. For those who serve well as deacons, they gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Serving the Lord in any capacity, it it is a blessing. And staying faithful until the end comes with a great reward. And the scriptures talk about this quite a bit. Paul talks about it. Jesus talks about it. We see a lot of, of this language in the Revelation that those who maintain their faithfulness to Christ to the end, in the world that is to come, we can expect a series of rewards when Christ returns. When He comes, He will bless those who have kept His word and stayed faithful to Him. They will receive the crown of life, which we, we see referred to in many different ways. They will be allowed to sit upon His throne he tells us in the Revelation. We also learn in the Revelation that he will wipe away our tears and we will be ushered into the presence of God. And and we even learn that we will have a share in the tree of life. All of these things are held out to us as the spiritual reward for those who stay faithful. But that's talking about reward that comes after this life. Paul's talking about a reward that comes in this life. Look back at it. The blessings of faith that all Christians will receive come in the end. The deacons who serve today and serve faithfully will gain a good standing in the church. And what that means is that faithful deacons will be respected, loved, even honored by those they serve. Their care for the flock of God should not go unnoticed. And so I say this to you as brothers and sisters, deacons, at Cornerstone are worthy men. They and their wives serve faithfully, quietly, in a hidden way generally, behind the scenes. They don't stand on this platform very often, but they are worthy of your love and respect and your support. 
don't take them for granted. Be thankful for them. Don't take their wives for granted. Be thankful for them and show your gratitude for them in whatever way that you can. Make sure that they know that you appreciate all of the hidden work that they do. But there is a final blessing that doesn't come from outside of them, from us, but it comes from within their own hearts. Paul says, or he he tells Timothy, that these who serve faithfully as deacons will will grow in their confidence regarding the faith. In other words, they, they will have a great confidence in Christ. What is that all about? In their faithful service, their assurance will deepen and their trust in the Lord will grow. It's, it's not an easy thing to serve. It's certainly not an easy thing to serve in hard times. And, and in those times, here's what I've learned, and I'm sure that my faithful deacons and elders could agree, that I've learned just how inadequate I am for the office. And yet, together with the wisdom of the assembled men and with a heart of humility open to the Word of God and a trust in the power of the Spirit of God, we can grow. And time and time again, when we walk through those seasons, our trust in Christ just grows. Not our trust in ourselves, but our trust in Him. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. Serving well leads to a freedom of conscience. We can trust the Lord. If we're faithful... We can trust the Lord, and through that, our relationship to Him just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And the passage that I referenced earlier from Matthew 25 becomes something of reality for us, although we don't attend to it perfectly. Jesus says this in Matthew 25, verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink, and I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So to my fellow elders and deacons, our service is not for worldly acclaim. It's not to get our names on a plaque. Our service is to Christ. Our service is to the Lord. And our service looks like caring for all of these sheep that are here and the more that will come. So strive to do that with me faithfully, with humility and according to God's word. And as a church, we can recognize something of this and be thankful to the Lord for it. And hopefully, you will pray for your elders and your deacons. The deacon's role is one of service to the body of Christ and it's service on behalf of Christ himself. A deacon must possess a strength of Christian character that sets an example to the rest of us and also sets them apart in the church. They must be tested and upon proving themselves faithful, they serve. Their wives are to be women of model character as well for they share in the care of the flock alongside their husbands and they must shepherd their families well And in their service, they will grow to earn the love and respect of the body, as well as growing in their trust in Christ their Lord. Deacons seldom get the thanks and credit they deserve. Like those great men, we remember their names, but we don't remember the names of Spurgeon's deacons. We probably should. Because Jesus said, it's those who serve who are greatest in the kingdom, right? 
They serve in hidden and quiet ways most of the time, but their office is essential. So let's thank the Lord for our deacons. Be sure to pray for them and their families and strive to follow their good example of selfless sacrifice to Christ and the church. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for these qualifications. You have given us instruction on what the church is to look like. And, and maybe that will conflict with our modern sensibilities, but your word is timeless and true. So help us to be faithful to it, faithful to you. And Lord, I do pray for our elders today. I pray for our deacons today that you would strengthen them by your grace and by your word to be faithful in the office to which we have been called. I pray for our deacons today that you would strengthen them and allow them to grow in their assurance because of their faithful service to you and allow us as a body to be abundantly thankful for the leaders you've given to us and let us pray for them and be concerned for them as they are concerned for us and Lord I pray that you would strengthen us as a church in both unity and faithfulness so that we can have our lampstand maintained and the gospel proclaimed from this place we pray these things in Jesus name Amen.